Hi, and welcome to the DebtWire Middle Market Podcast. I'm Bill Weisbrod, Senior Reporter with DebtWire. Today, we're joined by Jens Ernberg, Managing Director and Co-Head of Private Credit at asset management firm Capital Dynamics. Last month, Jens co-authored a paper on direct lending as a hedge against the headwinds of the current inflationary environment, especially in the lower middle market. So we're going to talk about that topic today. Thanks for joining us, Jens. Thanks very much for having me, Bill. So just to start off, can you, as briefly as you can, why are private credit and direct lending, especially to the lower middle market, you know, why do you consider them safe harbors in times of economic upheaval and an inflationary environment as we're facing right now? Yeah, look, maybe start starting with the second part of the, the commentary around inflation. So uh, as we all know, inflation, when it starts to uh, exceed the uh, the Fed's mandated levels of 2 to 3%, um, the Fed will generally intervene and try to uh, raise rates in an effort to slow the economy and uh, increase price stability for, for consumers. Uh, and that rising rate environment has a lot of implications, of course, for investors. Um, certainly longer duration assets tend to suffer in that environment, both from a valuation perspective. On the fixed income side, if you're invested in traditional fixed income securities like uh, uh, corporate bonds, uh, those obviously are vulnerable in rising rate environments where you're Earning a fixed rate as the backdrop environment is increasing. So those are vulnerable in, in that environment. So one of the advantages of direct lending in particular within the private private credit asset class is that they're generally floating rate uh, instruments. So as, as the backdrop of rates rise, uh, so too do the yields on these uh, instruments. And so they have a natural hedge against the rising rate environment. Now, of course, um, inflation is a little bit of a double-edged sword uh, in regards to companies themselves as a modestly rising rate is beneficial to companies uh, as um, uh, as consumers look to purchase items and, and invest in services uh, uh, with the expectation that prices are going to increase over time and therefore spending dollars today that will be worth less in the future. Uh, will cause uh, stimulated economic activity, if you will. Um, but on the downside, um, inflation tends to spur cost increases in terms of wages and input costs. And and obviously, if rates increase, uh, increased cost of funds for these businesses. So uh, that uh, will tend to uh, compress margins um, and can, you know, in certain, certain circumstances, impact overall profitability as a circumstance if, if inflation is rising higher than companies are able to increase their pricing of, of goods and services, that'll uh, inevitably lead to, to, uh, to margin compression and cash flow deterioration. So uh, it is a little bit of a double-edged sword. What we have is an advantage in terms of structuring in the lower middle market, at least what we're seeing, is that we have the capacity to, uh, because of the competitive dynamics and, and the lower competitive intensity in lower middle markets, uh, to have a greater say in, in structuring and pricing. And, and, and on the structuring side, I'm really talking about the amount of leverage that's being put on these companies, as well as the inclusion of financial maintenance covenants that allow us to more closely monitor the operations of the business. So uh, on the lower leverage side, if you look at the lower middle market, it tends to be a turn or two 
lower in terms of debt to EBITDA or loan to value is uh, typically uh, meaningfully lower in the lower middle market than it is in the core and the upper middle markets. Um, and, and that gives the businesses a little more room to maneuver uh, in times of stress where uh, margins may be compression, compressing for, for whatever reason, maybe uh, price increases uh, have failed to, uh, to prevail and, and the cost structures continue to, uh, to increase because of inflationary pressures. Um, you know, having the ability to maneuver through those markets with uh, less debt on your books obviously is helpful. Uh, and then the, the maintenance covenants we think are are really important, and we've always believed they're important. It does allow lenders to intervene and come into the companies early in times of underperformance, and, and really speak to the owners and the sponsors if there's a sponsor involved uh, about what's going on and how to resolve the the issues that they're facing. Um, and you're entering at a time when there are many more degrees of freedom uh, for the business. They're not in a uh, you know they're off 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 plan, of course, but they're not in a position where they're out of money or uh, severely off plan, which which is really when somebody would contact you uh, in circumstances where they don't have the covenants that, that force them to effectively engage in that conversation with lenders. Thanks. So to the point of lower middle market companies, they're generally considered, or middle market companies in general, are considered to be riskier than bigger ones just due to their smaller size, you know, more susceptible to customer loss, margin pressures, maybe they might have less pricing power within their market compared to some some bigger players. What do you think about that when assessing, you know, the, the area of the market that we're talking about? Look, I think that's a very fair comment. Obviously, smaller businesses tend to be a little more vulnerable. They tend to have some of those negative credit features that you mentioned around perhaps customer concentration or vendor concentration that put them at, at uh, perhaps slightly more risk. And and that too, of course, informs the structuring to a degree. So uh, the reality is that these businesses should probably be less levered than the, the much larger companies that, uh, that have more diversified customer base and maybe more... Um, more more distributed vendor base. Uh, I will argue, though, that the U.S. economy is a little bit unusual in that it's it's so diverse and there are so many niche markets across the services industry, the healthcare industry, the technology industry. Uh, you know, I'll I'll name them all, but I won't name them all. But but um, within those markets, there are meaningful players uh, that are leaders in those niches, and that as a result have strong pricing power. They tend to have uh, significant diversification within their vendor base and their customer base. And so uh, it goes back to the basic credit selection, but but there's a vast opportunity set in, in the U.S. economy in particular, where there are these leaders that are uh, subscale by, you know, if we're categorizing businesses by large cap, mid cap, and small cap, uh, but that are dominant within their niche markets, and those markets are growing, and and they have as such the capacity to pass through costs and and maintain margins. So our portfolio has performed very well through the recent crisis, and and all of our companies have demonstrated an ability to pass through uh, higher price increases than that than they have experienced cost increases. Any examples you can give of, you know, deals you're looking at or deals you've done, you know, where the company was, you know, would be characterized as lower middle market yet has been, you know, fit that criteria you talked about where it has been able to withstand some of the 
ongoing pressures at the moment? Yeah, so we have we have a, we have one business, for example, that that serves the uh, the outdoor uh, furniture space. They're they're a provider of um, of uh, really cushioning products for um, you know lounge chairs and couches and and other uh, furniture items, mainly for the outdoor. Uh, they're they're growing ex- expertise uh, for indoor furnishings as well. Um, their sort of competitive advantage here is they've developed a very strong nearshore presence, which, which has allowed them to meaningfully shorten their supply chain and increase their turnaround time and position them to be uh, a leader in terms of on-time delivery, for example, which has been critically important in this challenged supply chain environment. And, um, you know, the size of that market is, is, uh, maybe not gigantic, but it's, it's big and growing. A lot of people are investing in their homes generally. And certainly that was an area of great investment during the, uh, the COVID crisis. But, but because of those features they have, particularly the supply chain side, uh, they developed a very strong position within the key retailers of these products. And for them, there's certainly been cost increases around their supply chain, for sure. There's no doubt about that. Fuel has uh, injected cost increases, um, but they have, uh, you know, have have certainly been able to introduce cost increases, uh, price increases. Sorry, that have uh, significantly more than offset uh, their cost increases. You know, similarly, labor costs for them have gone up, but given their footprint and and the significant uh, nearshore operations, um, they've had a very manageable uh, cost base increase on the labor side. So, uh, you know, this is a niche player within a, a niche market, but they're a dominant player in that market, which has allowed them uh, to uh, to really experience, you know, to, uh, to us even pretty surprisingly out surprising outperformance. That's a good rundown, and it definitely sounds like the kind of thing that a lender would have really have to do a lot of due diligence work around to to understand relative, you know, in the investment process. I mean, you know, how would you know? Or, or I don't know how much this applied to the lower middle market and the types of deals you look at, but um, we, we've been hearing probably around the end of last year, beginning of this year, just that the competitive dynamic to put money to work in private credit was so severe that you know a lot of firms, a lot of lenders were you know, shortening their due diligence time, you know, relative to how, to how they pre to, how, to, to what they previously would have spent. You know, what's the competitive dynamic like now in the lower middle market in terms of you know just sourcing new deals and putting money out there? Well, I think it's no secret that there's been a ton of money raised uh, for private credit and and direct lending in particular, and that certainly increased the competitive intensity. I think across markets. Um, the interesting thing about our end of the market, uh, the lower end of the middle market, is um, while there are a lot of purveyors of solutions, the reality is we don't see the same competitor more than once or twice a year. So we rarely see the same folks competing uh, on similar deals. And I think that speaks to just the depth of the lower middle market in terms of opportunity set. Um and and that depth of opportunity set uh, reduces the overall competitive intensity, and so we haven't really seen a compressing of our due diligence times or our capacity to really dig in to understand the fundamentals of the business. 
And look, you're right. We do need to spend more time on these businesses because they are smaller and we need to understand uh, the risks perhaps to, perhaps to a greater degree than folks that are focused on core or upper middle markets. Uh, but, but, but if you contrast the timelines, most of our opportunities we're looking at, the diligence process runs somewhere between four and eight weeks. And if you compare that, you know, the broadly syndicated markets, you're, you know, if you're a participant, you're given days <laughs> and the core middle market, uh, you better, you, you better be quick to commit because now you're competing both against investment banks and your largest competitors. And, and, you know, I think I won't name names, but, but the same guys show up to every core middle market deal and, and the battle for, uh, for market share there involves, you know, compromising on rate pricing and structure. What's your what's your view on uh, sponsored versus non-sponsored deals in in your end of the market? And and can you just clarify, you know, when you say lower middle market, you know, what what are you talking about in terms of check size, you know, credit facility size, EBITDA size, and you know, sponsored? And and then Ted, do you have a preference, non-sponsored versus sponsored at the moment, and what's more attractive on a risk return basis? Yeah, you know, good question. So when I talk about lower middle market, I'm really talking about business with EBITDA between. Um, call it five on the low end and up to 30 on the high end. Our focus is really between 10 and 20. That's really our sweet, our sweet spot. And, you know, if you think about facility sizes between three and five times EBITDA is sort of the range that we do. Uh, so on the low end, you're talking about $20 million facilities. And on the high end, you're probably talking about, um, you know, the five times the 30 or so, so 150 in terms of facility sizes. So, um, you know, these are, our, our average is probably in the 40 to $75 million facility size range. Um, so truly lower middle market in our eyes, I think core middle market probably starts to engage at the 25 million EBITDA on up. And then, you know, the broadly syndicated is now up in the seventies probably. So look, we're, we're exclusively fo- focused on, on sponsored transactions. Um, I think there are benefits to both. I do think there is a difference in how you approach the market depending on what strategy you're pursuing. So, you know, for us, we have a big advantage on the sponsor side because we have a significant uh, presence on the primaries or fund to fund side. So we, as an institution or an investor in lower middle market focused private equity managers, and, and we're actually an investor in, in, I call it over 400 funds globally of principally lower middle market private equity funds. That gives us a great information advantage around the sponsors themselves, uh, you know, how they've performed historically, importantly, how they've behaved in challenging times, whether they've been supportive, both in terms of providing operational support, as well as if needed capital support. And that that's important to us, understanding that they have the chops to reposition a business if they're uh, in a challenging position. I, and we saw a lot of this during COVID, right? So, um, you know, some businesses needed capital, but more than anything else, uh, management teams really needed needed operational support. They had to quickly pivot to either a work-from-home environment if, if your business was a position to do that, or if you had a manufacturing plan, you had to reposition or reconfigure your manufacturing facility to make sure you were providing a safe work environment. You probably had to move shifts around to accommodate, uh, you know, personal conflicts around school, et cetera. 
Uh, and you had to kind of rethink your business models and, and you know, bolster your continuity, business continuity plans. And, and, and all that um, has to happen in, in, a, in a quickly changing environment. And so your, your management teams are really overwhelmed by, in this case, a multitude of challenges. And, and having the sponsor being able to step in and help them think strategically about what's going on and then prioritize decisions and, if needed, inject capital we think is an important safety uh, valve for these businesses. And so we think there is a risk return advantage. I, th I think, or I, I believe that the rates that you can earn in the non-sponsored market, generally speaking, are probably higher uh, than once you can achieve in the comparable sponsor market. So sponsor focus market. So no matter what market you're in, whether you're lower upper or, or Broadly syndicated markets, um, I believe that to be true. That there's probably a hundred or so basis points of of yield enhancement for being uh, uh, for pursuing non-sponsored transactions, but that comes with a different profile, right? I think in that instance, you as the lender and primary source of capital have to assume a much bigger role uh, within the business. Obviously, there's lender liability issues, but generally speaking, you become the first line of defense in that circumstances where things start to go poorly. And so uh, that means that you have to be prepared to allocate capital and importantly, human resources to those situations. And you have to be staffed accordingly. You know, similarly, when you think about, um, you know, the depth of opportunity set, um, there's also a big difference, I think, between sponsor and non-sponsor in terms of uh, efficiency around sourcing. You know, sponsors are, program to originate and close transactions, whereas non-sponsor uh, entrepreneur-owned businesses, um, you know, they're much more fickle in their decision. These businesses are owned by entrepreneurs that, that are making big decisions about, uh, you know, their primary nest egg. And, and so when things get challenging, uh, it becomes challenging for them to make decisions and, and, and take risks around transactions. And oftentimes it's hard for them to inject additional capital because they're fully invested in their business already. And so um, I think it's a different profile. I'm not saying one is better than the other. I just think it, you have to adjudicate uh, those businesses slightly differently. But we do like the, you know, and, and it, it really helps to have the platform that we have with respect to sourcing opportunities. But we, we do like the capital velocity as well as the additional uh, support and operational rigor and oversight and capital support, uh, not always, but generally speaking, that you get from sponsors. We think the added level of protection and support that you get there kind of outweigh the slight concessions you're making from a yield perspective. Um, but, but that's my view. I, I don't think it's a bad business to be pursuing non-sponsored. It's just a different different business. We're almost out of time, but I just wanted to see if there's any sectors of interest that you're focusing on at the moment or sectors that you're uh, avoiding in the lower middle market. And also if, you know, how any sectors or types of companies that are especially better to equip to um, handle a rising rate environment and higher cost of capital uh, given their size. Yeah, that's always a good question in terms of sectors. Look, we haven't really changed our approach. We're, we're really sector agnostic. Um, our philosophy is that uh, that critical to success in in direct lending is having a, a very diversified portfolio. You know, every crisis is different. Every cri crisis impacts 
companies and industries differently. differently. And I think the best way to protect yourself um, from, from, you know, sort of poor outcomes in your portfolio is to make sure you're well diversified across industries so that there's as limited of a correlation across your assets as possible. So we don't really exclude um, industries from consideration. Um, the environment probably informs or will inform, I should say, the way we structure uh, our transactions. I will say we don't do hard asset lending. So we don't lend against real estate. We generally don't lend against commodity commodity-based businesses or businesses whose primary uh, revenue driver is very correlated to the underlying commodity. So that means we really don't do oil and gas. We don't do mining. Uh, we don't do, do businesses where we don't really understand how the, how the, the price of the commodity moves enough to, to we're not smart enough to figure that out to, under, to understand how to appropriately underwrite those businesses. So we won't do those. You know, of course, there are big swaths of the U.S. economy that are enjoying tailwinds, including you know, healthcare, just given the demographics that we have in the country. Uh, business services are, are and have always been a strong sector within the U.S. economy. Um, you know, retail has been challenged, obviously, over the last uh, 15, 20 years with, uh, with tackling their, you know, multi-channel approach, whether it's e-commerce, uh, versus brick and mortar. Um, it's not to say we wouldn't look at retail, but I think it, it commands a much lower leverage multiple and has to be, uh, those models have to be stressed, uh, pretty hard in terms of looking at the downside case and an underwriting to make sure that, uh, the businesses are capable of navigating a challenging environment. But but overall, uh, this is a long answer to your question, but overall, we haven't really changed our approach. We don't really kick out an industry per se. There are industries that are more or less uh, accessible depending on what's going on uh, in the economy. But, but, but our principal approach here is to try to be as diversified as possible so that uh, in any given crisis, we don't see a correlation across our asset base. Gotcha. All right. Well, thanks, Jens. Really appreciate you taking the time and best of luck. Thank you, Bill. Much appreciated.